Rachel Skiffer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you are the head of school of the Khan Lab School, and uh, this was an outgrowth of Khan Academy. So before we get into the Khan Lab School and what's happening there, which you guys are really pioneering and innovative approach to learning, so I'm really excited for this conversation. I think we'll be rich. First of all, what is Khan Academy for those that have perhaps been living in a cave and have not had access to the internet? Sure. So Khan Academy is the um, the genius of Sal Khan, and he really started uh, because he was helping his cousins, middle school cousins, in math. He was tutoring them, and he found that the most efficient way to do that, because he actually had a couple of cousins, was via YouTube realized that more than his cousins were looking at it and uh, decided it really was his passion to teach in this way. Um, He's got the rare gift of being able to explain very complicated things in a way that everyone can understand. And so he left his job in finance and created Khan Academy. And the mission of that uh, institution is to provide a free world-class education for everyone anywhere. And so also a brainchild of Sal Khan was Khan Lab School. Uh, So I like to sometimes think of Sal as the trunk of a tree and Khan Academy is one branch and Khan Lab School is another. And it really, I think for him was he wanted to, because he respects teachers and I think also understands the relational nature of teaching, wanted to have a laboratory school. Um, It was initially, I think, thought of as a a center for learning for Khan Academy, but then it really became its own separate entity. And he started with 30 kids and hired some teachers. And now uh, we're in our fifth year and we're 165 students from five years old all the way through 16. And we'll have our first graduates in two years. Excellent. And so before we dig into the approach to learning, I want to uh, rewind the tape a bit and get a sense of your own educational journey because you went to Harvard Law School. Mm -hmm. And so how does one go from, say, Harvard Law to then getting into education and becoming a head of school? So what what was your journey to the degree that you want to Sure. So I always loved school. I was always one of those kids who was pumped to go to school. I liked my teachers. Even when I didn't like my teachers, I still liked school. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I went to a very hippie preschool in San Francisco, which I loved and still have friends from. And then kindergarten through eighth grade, I went to an all-girls school called Mm -hmm. Catherine Delmar Burke School, which I loved. And one of the most powerful parts of that experience is that I didn't realize that there were roles that girls were supposed to play within school and our best athletes were girls, the best journalist was a girl, the best person at math and English and science. There was none of that sort of, oh, actually, you need to tamp that down a bit. (laughs) Um, We had uniforms, so no one cared what you were wearing and um, we could just really be ourselves and learn. And um, from there, I went to a huge public magnet school in San Francisco called Lowell. And I remember being in a math class with some boys and boom, you know, sort of telling myself like, oh, these guys aren't too bad. (laughs) Um, And it was one of those moments where I realized that I had found my voice in grade school in a way that some of the other girls I went to school with did not. Um, 
so after Lowell, which was academically very traditional, I think socially it was great because it opened up the world of San Francisco to me and sort of the different kids who, who make up the city and also learned about bureaucracy, which is, is still helpful to this day. Um, and then I went to Harvard for college because I wanted to see how far away I could get yeah. from San Francisco. And I went in, I was going to go to medical school. I was going to be a child psychiatrist for some reason. Hmm. And my first year, I took a lot of math and science classes and I was miserable, miserable. And so I gave myself permission my sophomore year to take a math and science-free semester. And I just, I was so happy. I took a women's studies class. I ended up majoring in women's studies. I actually didn't tell my dad till I graduated. Um, I was like, it'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and so I just, I ended up taking, and what I liked about women's studies is I could take classes in any discipline. Mm. And so I took Afro-Am classes. I took econ classes. I went to the ed school. The ed school piece will come back later. Um, sort of anthropology, music. I really just yeah. got to play. It was fun for me. And um, I also took a class on the Warren Court and sort of the history of Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And I read an incredible book called Simple Justice. Um, that really walks you through the strategy of Brown versus Board. And it was at the end of that book, um, I remember, I think I might have been in the dining hall or something, and I just had this aha moment of like, oh, that's why my parents have always been on me about like education, and yeah. it's so important. And they hadn't really, they both grown up in Chicago and hadn't really told me everything about what they had gone through. Um, just educationally and just with our whole family moving from Mississippi before them. But it was always education, education, education. Um, And so some people talk about tiger moms. I kind of say that I had a panther mom. (laughs) And and all that that encompasses. She was very sort of progressive um, Mm. and sort of black power, but it was also like, do your work. Right. Um, And so when I finished college... Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I'd spent a lot of years working as a legal advocate intern for a battered women's program. And so I continued to do that the summer after college. And I also edited an ecology textbook because hmm. I had an incredible seventh grade science teacher, Mrs. Rebishong. Uh-huh. And uh, so then I went to law school. And there I really, I went more as grad school than professional school. Hmm. Very naive of me. But I think it's why I loved law school. Because it was also a place where I just took the classes I wanted to take. Yeah. So Lonnie Guineer was taking a was teaching mm-hmm. a class on voting rights. I was going to take that. Every once in a while, I would second guess myself and take a class that I thought I should take. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was miserable. So that was sort of my educational journey. Um, I didn't really because I hadn't really thought about being a lawyer. I didn't really know what to do. Yeah. Um, so I worked at McKinsey for a while because I was like, okay, I've majored in women's studies and I've been at this kind of precious law school. I don't really know how to do anything yeah. except for think, but it helped me get sort of those grown up practical skills around um, sort of PowerPoint and Excel and project management and presenting to really old, intimidating people. <laughs> um, 
And, but what's interesting about that year is I had a friend who was working in the admissions office at Harvard and I went to visit and he had his folders on the floor and I was like, can I look at those? He probably shouldn't have let me look at them, but I did. (laughs) And I was just so fascinated by people's narratives, just the stories. And so, um, he called me when I was working at McKinsey and said, Hey, we have an opening. Might you be interested? And so even though I had loans, um, I was smart and I bought my cousin's hoopty Chevy for $6,000. I didn't really have a lot of, um, I hadn't given myself the golden handcuffs. Yeah. And so I just, I, I took the job. Um, and it was a little frightening. And I think my friends from law school and even my family were like, what is this woman doing? Yeah. Um, but I love the job. I actually ended up sitting in the financial aid office, also doing admissions. And um, it was a great way to get to know students. It was a great way to do sort of some financial education. Kids would come in and ask for more money. And I would say, well, let's sit down and talk about how much you're going to be paying off each month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also an opportunity for me um, to do some access work and I would travel my my region was upstate New York and I would just try to go to places that had never seen an Ivy League recruiter before and say it's not even just about my school but here's how financial aid works and sometimes these private schools can be cheaper than your state schools and Hmm. I also um, helped run the the Harvard Winter Cope Fund so for kids who were coming from warm places and sort of like a windbreaker was what they wore when it got chilly. Also just helping kids finance. That stuff's expensive, like boots and things like that. So did that for a while, realized I still had loans, ended up going to a firm and doing real estate because that was a family business. But I always kept tabs on my friends in education. And um, one of my friends got a a great job at MIT and I realized I was jealous. Mm. So... um, (laughs) Left my firm. I worked at a school in Chicago, and then I was moonlighting as a lawyer um, to keep paying off those loans. And once my loans were paid off, I went to education, and I didn't look back. Yeah, excellent. And so here you are as the head of the Khan Lab School. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, so how is it different than a, a normal school? Um, sure. And I guess uh, everyone has a, a vi- like their vision of what education looks like having you know, gone through it in mm-hmm. some capacity. And so what is the vision for the Khan Lab School and your approach to learning? So our vision, you know, part of it is that we think that kids don't get enough credit for what they're able to do. And we also are part of sort of a movement that many believe in that sort of moving kids forward just because a year has elapsed or holding kids back because they haven't hit the year where they're supposed to learn something. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and since we're not really preparing kids for a life and um, sort of an industrial life the way schools used to, we wanted kids to be able to take the time they needed and to also allow them to move ahead um, if if they were ready to. So we, in our fifth year, we have students who are five, sort of what would be traditional kindergartners, all the way to sort of 15, 16 year olds who would otherwise be sophomores. And we have mixed age cohorts. 
And so what we really do throughout the arc of the school is we help students um, not only on content, but we really focus on social emotional learning and also on work habits, sort of those things that you are never taught, but that are a huge deal um, when you get out of school. And so collaboration, goal setting, um, being able to um, just be mindful of, of your impact on others. Um, also to be able to talk to your teachers and to really see them as people who are helping you in your journey versus like, okay, this person is putting an obstacle in front of me and my, my goal is to get around it. Um, and so what I like about it, I think some people think about KLS and say, oh, that's just for kids who really want to super accelerate. But what we also do, it's mastery based. So what we tell kids is learn it till you know it. Right. Um, and if it, it takes you a little less time than other people, that's great. But if it takes you a little longer, that's absolutely fine. Because our goal is to help you um, and the teachers educate yourself. Hmm. And so it's not about sort of the time march through this place. It's really about how much are you able to absorb um, and also, how do we make sure that we keep a lit your passion for learning um, so that by the time you are done with, with KLS, really the, the world is your oyster. Um, and you're also, you're, you have a sense of what you want your meaning and purpose in life to be as much as you can at 18. Right. Definitely. <clears throat> so something, just digging a little bit deeper... Uh, looking at the approach to learning on your website, it says that content is personalized and then the context is project-based. So I feel like I have an idea of what that means, mm -hmm. being being a teacher, but I'm just curious if you could perhaps unpack that a little more. So content is personalized. What does that mean? So say I'm learning science. Mm -hmm. How can I personalize my that, that approach to learning? Sure. So I, th I think what's what's interesting for us is that even though we have kids in classes, they can be working on lots of different things. So I, I like to say that we have a, a, an understanding of what the scope is, but we don't necessarily determine the sequence. Okay. And what I also like is there's a good balance between sort of analog and digital. The digital piece helps us better track where kids are, and in particular where they might have holes, um, so that if we do paper-based problems or other things, we know exactly what a student needs to bone up on. Um, it's, it's hard work for teachers, um, but it's also really interesting creative work. And a bit because of that, you really have to have a good sense of where a student is. Um, and then I think what's also nice is, um, if you think about someone like Joe Bowler in math and how she likes to, to create problems that have a floor and a ceiling. So you could have students who are sort of in different, um, who have different facilities with math, shall I say, but right. can all, all of those students can really get something out of a project or a problem. Um, I, one of the questions I always get is, are the kids on Khan Academy all day just... Yeah sort of Chromebooks and headphones, and it's not like that at all. I think right. we benefit from our relationship with Khan Academy, um, but our kids have books. They use pens and pencils and notebooks, and um, 
and you know, sort of beyond all the research about how viable that is to actually use your hand to write. But I, I think really what it's about is creating um, really healthy spaces for students to learn um, from the physical part of it. If you go to a lower school ELA class, the, some kids are on a rug. Some kids are on sort of traditional seats. Some kids are on some seats that roll around because they really need to move their bodies yeah. to actually listen and learn. So we allow that freedom. Yeah. Um, and we also, for instance, allow students to choose their own books. So if a theme is biography, the hmm. kids don't necessarily have to be reading the same book. Okay, um, but what that also allows them uh, is the space to actually share with their classmates what they're reading what the impact has been and be able to sort of work on common themes. Um, so there are some, some times when kids may be reading the same book to start, but we don't want to just sort of say, this is how we're teaching it. Good luck kids. Either yeah. you fit into it or you don't. Yeah. Um, it's really about um, our, without making them too precious again, yeah. <laughs> um, our making learning fun and relevant. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. It sounds like you're really meeting them where they're at, mm-hmm. um, and hence that personalization piece. Uh, now, another part is that the context is project-based, and mm-hmm. so what's an example of of a project-based uh, outcome? Uh, sure. So one of one of the ones I love is something that our youngest students did, what we call Independence Level One, five and six year olds. So um, we are a year-round school, and um, this past summer, I should add that the kids love it. They love it. Um, Critical. (laughs) But this past summer, our youngest students did a project on sort of earthquakes. And so that entailed learning about earth science, learning about engineering, um, learning about architecture, learning about zoning, which seems like a lot for a five- and six-year-old, but they were really into it. And so... Um, not only did they create models of the earth and, and what we do at the end of terms is we have these exhibitions. So parents and older students will walk through and a student will say, you know, let me talk you through the layers of the earth. Um, and they're really earnest about it. Um, and that group also in teams built structures for a town, um, so that, come exhibition we the kids simulated an earth earthquake yeah and the goal was to see which buildings stayed up (laughs) and which ones fell and it really i mean it was people were on the edge of their seats and even the kids as they were watching it because they didn't know what was going to happen um and they had some theories as to which of their structures would work and which ones wouldn't but just it was a lot of fun but in the fact that the kids were having so much fun, they weren't thinking like, oh, I'm a six-year-old who's learned a little about engineering and architecture yeah. or have even realized that they're learning about earth science. Yeah. But it was all for um, a really interesting, really fun project. We're talking popsicle sticks. It wasn't, <laughs> you know, sort of high art or anything like that. Um, but the kids got a lot out of it. I know that they will remember what they did long beyond... Right. when the exhibition was um but they but they also left with a lot of a lot of content knowledge yeah absolutely and so this sort of feeds into i know some of the outcomes which are uh, they have portfolios and there's a mastery based transcript mm-hmm. so 
so a portfolio, I guess, is what it sounds like, that it's a highlight of, mm-hmm. of what it is they've learned. So what, so this could be an example. Uh, I guess, what would have gone into their portfolio from this project? Sure. So from this, I think probably it would have been more sort of media-based things. Okay. So it could have been a video. It could have been sort of photography of their creating the earth models or putting together... Um, their structures, it could have been sketches right. um, as they were thinking about what they wanted their buildings to look like. And I think some of that, the portfolio work, and I think sort of the challenge for educators is, especially if you're doing a portfolio over time, how do you curate it? Right. And so that's a skill as well. Um, sort of this may be a project you really loved, but is it displaying something that's absolutely new or... Um, I think also in in schools, we always have to be mindful of the danger of just adding right. without taking away. So as students mature, um, is there something you've done later that you might want to put in your portfolio in place of something that um, you did earlier, and but actually it, right. it shows your trajectory? Um, and then I think for the, the, the mastery transcript, that's been really interesting. We're part of a consortium of about 200 schools, private schools, public schools as well. Um, and really, I see it as sort of twofold. One, is there a way for us, especially as a school that doesn't give grades, to really communicate with colleges who our kids are, what they've learned, what they're about, um, without having it be sort of four years of narrative trans of narrative yeah. reports that's 100 pages is long because no one wants to read that. Um, but also, I think it keeps schools honest about learning outcomes, sort of what is the point? Um, what are the key takeaways that you want right. students to have after um, the end of their time with you in that unit or module? And so if you don't really know what those are, then it's really hard to determine how a student has done. Yeah. Um, And then so what would a mastery-based transcript look like? Uh, Say, you know, if you're taking physics, mm -hmm. in the traditional model, you have an A, B, C, or whatever it might be. What what would it look like in a mastery-based transcript? How well they did? What what would be the equivalent kind of reflection of what they've learned? You know, it's, it's really interesting because I think because we're still working on this transcript, one of the conversations we've had is, do we have the year on there? Hmm. Um, right. You know, does our transcript just say you've taken four quote-unquote credits of English, but we don't need to tell the school if it took you only half a year or it took you a year and a quarter, but sort of like, this is what the student has done. This is what they've learned. Um, I do think that colleges are interested in exactly what a student has learned in a class. Um, So that's a bit tricky. There's something called the profile um, that every high school will send out with a transcript that sort of talks about their curriculum and their Mm -hmm. philosophy of education and sort of what their more challenging classes are, sort of these are the classes if a student is stretching themselves in a particular way would take. Um, so I think that's that's some of how we would describe it. But I think we can just say this student has covered what, you know, this particular standard within physics. And so if they've reached mastery, then we'll just we'll yeah. have mastery on there. Okay. Um, so if you're, if the goal is mastery, then is that the equivalent of getting an A in a class? Um, 
theoretically, I think though sometimes kids get A's in classes and then the moment they step out of the final, whatever they knew pours out of their ear. So so that's a great follow-up question. I I guess, you know, I I think I reflect on my own educational experience and so much of what you learn for the test, as you mentioned, you know, in a matter of hours almost drains away. Mm -hmm. So what what do you hope that students remember? in their long-term memory about these general topics from science to math to to language to to history? What, I guess, what do you think is realistic? You know, I think, I always say that there's sort of a a body of knowledge that people need to know just to be learned. Right. But also that people are, people are well lopsided. So... You know, someone, a student may really geek out on history Mm. and chemistry, but they may not necessarily feel bio in the same way. And so one of the the tensions, I think, for any school, whether they're giving grades or not, is how much content. Right. And so for, for younger kids, I would say that I actually think it's really important for kids to memorize times tables. Yeah. Sort of old school... There's not a lot of innovation around it, but it's much easier for students when they're doing more sophisticated problems to have that recall than to have to sort of type out 12 times 11. It just, it makes them inefficient. So I think, especially for schools that are new, sometimes you can innovate something to death to the detriment of students. And some stuff that's old school actually works. Right. Um, And so what, for me... Um, as a head of school, I always like to think about sort of backwards planning. So if I think about if a student is planning on majoring in physics at college, what do they need to know? Right. And if there's a student who will probably never take another physics class after high school, like what is good for them to know? So when they watch Jeopardy, they kind of know what's going on or, um, you know, if they're experiencing turbulence in the air, they know they're not going to die. I don't know. But um, <laughs> just sort of. And so, you know, there are a lot of really brilliant people who spend their their careers figuring out what the body of knowledge is. And so for us as a school, it's not our role necessarily to reinvent that. But our our teachers are, are really smart um, and they're able to curate and also to not pile on. I think that. A lot of, especially um, really sort of, um, I don't want to call them pressure cooker schools, but their fear is like the kids need to know absolutely everything. And so you hear these stories about AP U.S. history and the kids never sleep because they're just reading hours and hours of of textbooks. And um, same thing for something like calculus. What's interesting, I know in Palo Alto, I think it was Palo Alto, um, there was a teacher who had an AP calculus um, course. And so he wanted to have a class that didn't have homework. And so he found some kids who were interested in doing that and piloted it. And the scores were the same as what happened when he was giving kids loads and loads of homework. So over time, he was able to pull back because the proof was in the pudding. But I think there's a lot of anxiety around, um, are we preparing the children? And educators are slowly coming around to the idea that you can actually get more with less. Right. But it's scary, especially if what you have been doing 
has been working for students. Right. So, and I think for us as a new school, without APs, even though we'll let students take the test if they're interested, um, and without grades, our kids are able to focus on the learning right. and, and not the sort of blue ribbon at the end of it. Yeah. I think in life, um, because they're able to find joy in their learning and have the freedom to take intellectual risks because we give them the time to do that, um, they're just they're just having more fun. I think their approach to education is is healthier. Um, we actually also aim to not give homework in in any of the grades, including high school. And so, especially from parents whose students have transferred into KLS, they'll say our evenings are so different. Right. Like we can sit as a family and talk. Um, you know, the kids still grunt and they don't want to say anything, but they'll actually sit at the table with us versus like, I got to go and do my homework. Right. That excuse isn't there. But I think, you know, imagine sort of four years of being able to spend time with your child in high right. school versus sort of put a, putting a plate in front of their room and hoping they're okay because they're in there doing homework if you're lucky. But Yeah, it's a stark contrast. Yeah. And... Yeah, you're alluding to these dueling models of learning the traditional model that was built in the image of the Industrial Revolution mm-hmm. to prepare people for those social and economic realities. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it did it did that very well. But of course, the social and economic needs are light years from the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. uh, at least in places like the Bay Area. Yeah. And, and what I'm getting an impression of uh, is that at the Khan Lab School, uh, there's this focus on passion projects. And so, so much of schooling, it's about extrinsic motivation. If you happen to like it, that's a bonus, but that's really not the, the function and purpose. Mm-hmm. Where it seems that it's a bit reversed, that it seems that with that personalized form, passion is, in fact, pretty central. Yeah. Um, so, can you talk about the passion projects and what role, uh, I guess, students' passion and interest, or even on a lower scale, curiosity plays? Sure. So... Part of our day, um, so we actually start at nine and we go until four. And so the students are awake when we start. Yeah, right. um, and so for, um, so for all of the, all of the students, part of their day, part of their week is dedicated to projects. And so they will work in groups and um, they can be social studies based, English based, and all of them are interdisciplinary. There are some that are curated by um, our lead advisors. So um, recently, our middle schoolers did a project on a dress code. And it sounds really basic, but they learned about um, clothing manufacturing. They learned about sort of gender and when pink and blue were assigned and when they were flipped. Yeah. Um, labor laws, First Amendment. Um, that's why I got to use some of my law stuff um, and let them know that they had fewer rights in private school than they did in public school. Um, And so that was a really interesting project for them. I think even the parents were like, this sounds, the kids came home and I think they said, we're doing a fashion project. And so we had to say, no, this is, it's, it's more than that. Um, But it really was because as a new school, we didn't have a dress code. The kids were like, you know, we need to write this down. We need to right. know what our rights are. And so we threw it back at them. And it's like, well, you write it. Yeah. You do this research. Right. Um, you you figure out 
everything that it entails. And then, you know, you can come to the administration, you can come to the man and demand your rights. <laughs> um, so, so that was, that was one thing sort of out of their desire. Um, they did a project and then there are teeny things like students who are, who would be six or seven and they want to do cursive. Right. And there's some schools who just don't do cursive anymore. And my aside is how are kids supposed to be able to read historical documents if they can't read cursive? <laughs> but I know one of our students said at my old school, my teacher said, oh, well, we don't do cursive until third grade. Um, and her question was like, well, why do I have to wait? Yeah. And it's a good question because it doesn't make any sense. And so even though that's really small, there are these moments, I think, for all students when they get really excited about something and then that excitement is extinguished and it doesn't seem like a big deal, but right. it, students will carry that around for a while. Like, oh, okay, well, I'm, you know, let me just get in line then because whenever I try to break out, right. um, I'm told to sit down. Right. <laughs> and so um, I think sort of big or small, whether you're thinking about your rights as a middle schooler and what you should wear versus if you're, you're a young kid and you yeah. just are curious about something. Sure. Um, to be able to have the flexibility to to provide that space for students is really important. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think curiosity is such a primary driver of learning. And there was this great book I read recently called The More Beautiful Question, mm. looking at how questioning, too, is also such a powerful driver of learning and innovation, creativity. And it just seems, um, from what the research is saying, that we're born asking questions and being our curiosity is constantly being uh fostered by just being aware mm -hmm. and i think students when they're toddlers uh they're asking about uh a hundred questions a day and by the time they reach middle school it goes down to almost zero mm. which is just so tragic right. um to think about that and we know everyone's talking about that innovation is on the hearts and minds of everybody we need to be more innovative in our, our organizations and uh services and products and yet the very foundation is that sense of being able to ask questions is to follow your curiosity so it seems that if education is helping to prepare people make them innovation ready right you have to get back to the basics mm -hmm. which is hey what's inherent in all of us is that ability to be curious to ask questions about all these varying disciplines so it seems like you said so simple but those those simple um little moments of like someone's interested in cursive someone's not but how do you foster that and then it's interesting where that might lead over time right yeah um yeah by the time someone does graduate high school so that's i think that's wonderful it's it's fun i always joke with parents too especially high school age parents i'm like remember when your kid tried to walk yeah they didn't just fall on their butts and say like you know what i'm done this right, is it yeah. just carry me everywhere like they kept going and somehow um just the way education traditionally right. is structured, especially here, we sort of, we don't allow kids that space to kind of learn how to walk. It's like, you got to be a doe, pop out and start yeah, running right. or you're just, you know, it's too late for you. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah. 
So, so what is next for the Khan Lab School? Uh, it seems like it's really the initial uh, stages because mm-hmm. you guys have been around for how, how many years? Now? This is our fifth year. Fifth year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so growing and expanding. Yes. And so, what is your vision for the future? Sure, a couple of things. So, top of mind for me is we have our first students graduating in two years, okay. and so I want to sort of send them out in the world as fully functioning human beings in partnership with their families and and also making sure that wherever they land it's a good fit for them right um what's again what's interesting i've noticed just recently that since we work within a system we have our kids do standardized testing and so we had our our eighth graders ninth graders and tenth graders as you would traditionally call them take the psat um and they did incredibly well, incredibly well, to the point where it's two weeks now and I'm still thinking about how well they did, sort of like yeah. between 94 and 96 percentile on average. And so part of that is, for me, like that's not the point of the school, right. but I think it's a byproduct of making sure that what kids are learning, they know really well. And we actually say mastery, you have to... You have to display mastery in multiple contexts. Um, you can't just sort of get a problem right once and right. we're like, you're, you're good. But you, we want to make sure the learning is deep. And so it seemed like for our kids, taking these tests were fun. It was a challenge. <laughs> and if they didn't understand something, they really figured it out. And again, yeah. these are students who hadn't been getting grades before. And the standardized tests that we give them when they're younger are untimed. But they really, they rose to the, to the occasion. And I think it's because there wasn't the kind of anxiety right. that other students in more traditional spaces might feel. Right. Um, so that, I'll still be thinking about that for, for a while. Um, well, that sounds like a first, that people are actually excited by I the know. challenge of a test. It's, it's, uh, it's, I, it's, I, I've, I've asked this, I've asked this um, you know, anecdotally, the number of students when they've had to take tests, <clears throat> the SATs, or even just within the context of, of whatever exams are in, in the high school, I'm like, how many of you like tests? And of course, no one likes it because of the high stakes nature right. to it. And so it's fascinating that people could actually engage with standardized tests with a different mindset. With a different mindset. It's... Because everything else is predicated not on the test, but it's on that passion, on that mastery of learning, right. that personalized context. So then it allows them to then, if they are going to take these tests, to approach it with the kind of mindset you would hope they would. Exactly. That's and amazing. It's really, it's, it is mind-boggling. It really is. And what's also interesting for us, for our youngest students, we don't have, they don't take entrance exams. Yeah. And so for me, I think, um, especially as a, as a private school, um, you know, our teachers teach. So you don't have to know how to read to be a five-year-old at Con Lab School. If you do, great. If not, we are going to teach you. Right. Um, if you are a little behind in math, I've also been really impressed by the growth in students who might have come in a little behind, sort of grade level-wise. And um, so for the math testing we do for the younger students, um, we had one student who was sort of in the 59th percentile in math, and three years later, she's in the 99th percentile. Um, wow. We've had kids who've grown from 79% to 95%. And even the kids who are growing from 35 to 55%, um, they're just on yeah. their trajectory. They're, like, they're going to get there. Right. And it's because 
I think we can take away some of the shame that students feel if they're a little behind or if it takes them a little bit longer. But also we have really incredible teachers who work with kids and are able to sort of do some great diagnostics to figure out exactly what it is that a student needs to help them move forward. Um, So just all of it together is really exciting. I think for us as a school that started with 30 and we're 164 now, we we still want to grow within reason and um, make sure we have the space to do it. It definitely was successful in a way that I think even um, kind of the founders and Sal were like, okay, people are really interested in this. Um, and, and I think the other vision for the school is that for the things that we are doing and are, are confident in, you know, we're a lab school, so there are things that we're going to tweak and redo, but sort of once we feel really comfortable, we want to share that for free. Um, and so that's really exciting. And I think one of the, a, a sort of a sense of purpose for the team is that we are really focused on the success of our own students and all of us, teachers, parents, and the kids, know that we're doing it for more than ourselves. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> so I thought a nice way to, to wrap this conversation up is really looking at your motto, I believe, which mm-hmm. is everyone's a teacher, everyone's a student, mm-hmm. which I think is, is really fascinating. I guess it's self-explanatory, but how, how would you explain what the motto means? What, what does that sure. exactly look like where everyone is a teacher and a student? You know, I so I think of... KLS is a community of learners. And so um, a couple of things for our teachers around professional development. We have the traditional professional development, but we also have these lifelong learning grants. And it's money that teachers can use to take a class where they are a student. Wow. And um, just to sort of remember what it is to be able to, to observe someone else teaching. Um, and so that's been really exciting for our teachers, um, just to try something yeah. new and and put our money where our mouths are in terms of risk, taking risks. Right. Um, I also think for us, we want, we tell our students, if you have a question, before you ask the teacher, ask a friend. Right. Ask the student next to you. And so there are some times when your friend will turn to you and ask you a question, and then there's a time when you will do the same. Right. And so we want, part of the mastery is, if you're able to explain it to someone else, then you really know it. Right. And even our older students coming and help our, helping our younger students with math and things like that. So it's, it's you know, our, our teachers are obviously um, really skilled. But I also think that they know that the content, sort of the information that they have, they're not the only ones who have it but the relationships that they have with students and how they're able to support them and also their expertise in figuring out exactly what a student should know um, within disciplines and also how to make sort of multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary courses and projects is great. So we're always learning um, and we're, we're always teaching. So it's really, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really wonderful that, this environment where the fundamental 
thing that connects everyone is everyone's a learner. And there's mm-hmm. a spectrum uh, that everyone's on uh, from being a teacher and a learner. And it's not just for teachers. Teachers can be students as well. And right. Students can be teachers. And so just kind of recognizing that it seems it creates more of a democratic environment for everybody. Yeah. You can all be humble, um, recognizing we all need to learn and know things. Right. Um, it never ends. And yet there's also, for those people that might not think they might not know m- much, mm-hmm. in fact, they, they might. And how do you give right. them that platform and that sense of encouragement to to communicate what it is they right. do, do understand. And I think the other piece is it engenders generosity. Right. Right? Like, oh, I know this really interesting thing. Do you want to yeah. know it too? Let me share it with you. And it's not high stakes. It's not like, oh, well, I'm going to get a better grade if <laughs> I'm the only one who knows it. So so there's just there's the generosity of spirit mm. that is actually really powerful as well. Right. Oh, that's great. I think that's a perfect, perfect place to end. That education and learning should be around that sense of generosity mm-hmm. of spirit. So, yeah. excellent. Well, thank you so much sure, for coming on the podcast. Sure, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Definitely.